Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we have a special episode in store for you because we are going to be talking about some of the most exciting work, I would argue, being done by one of the executive producers of a little film you might have heard of called Skin Marink, Jonathan Barkan. We're going to start by talking with today's guest about how he got into the business of horror cinema before speaking with him about how he's discovered some of the biggest gems in horror. And we're also going to talk a little bit about what viewers may be able to expect from an upcoming documentary that he's directing, also directorial debut, Mental Health and Horror, the documentary. And then we're going to close out the show with a short lightning round of questions to give you a little bit more insight into Jonathan's flavor of horror to tell us a little bit more about how we came to cross paths with today's very special guest. I'd like to welcome the Cinematropolis co-founders from planet thunder productions, Jacob Layton Burns, Jacob also writer, director on shifter co-founder of the Cinematropolis, all the things. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And also sitting across the table from me, is Zachary Burns, the director of the upcoming film, Hell Hath No Theory, also from Plant Thunder Productions. Zach, welcome back. Yeah, always glad to be here. So, gentlemen, I'm super excited to talk with our special guest, uh, Jonathan Barkon, here in a little bit. But first, it might be good to know a little bit about how we came to cross paths with him exactly. So, Zach, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Tell me a little bit more about Plant Thunder Productions and how you came to team up and meet Jonathan. Way back in the day when Twitter was good, uh, we actually met on Twitter. Um, we, Jacob and I and Planet Thunder Productions were uh, coming out with our latest feature at the time, which was the time travel horror film Shifter. Uh, and we were uh, announcing the news that we had been accepted into the Cinequest Film Festival, which is in San Jose, California. We we're super excited about it. So we made a big deal on all our social media uh, profiles. And so I tweeted it out, I think with about 500 exclamation points that we had uh, gotten into this film festival. And then uh, out of the blue, uh, Jonathan tweeted at me saying like, Hey, I heard you got into the Cinequest film festival. Congrats. Can I see that movie? That sounds interesting. Uh, (laughs) And so I immediately texted Jacob. Well, actually immediately I was like, who is this random internet person? Uh, <laughs> As one does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I checked out his Twitter profile and was like, okay, he's uh, uh, works at a, a distributor. That's exciting. So uh, and then I immediately, uh, I think, called Jacob and was like, what, should, should we do this? Should we trust this random guy from the internet? Uh, and we, we decided it was worth, worth it uh, to at least send him a screener of the film. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, there you go. Rest is history, I guess. Rest is history. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, listeners, you know, you may recall a little film called Shifter. We did like, I think it was a six part podcast series Yeesh, on the on the, the entire. Yeah, it was like uh, following the entire development of like all the way from like yeah, yeah, writing right. the script all the way to the release. Yeah. It was also really weird because we we podcasted with you right before you went to the first <laughs> film festival that was yeah. shut down by the pandemic. Anyway, yeah. shameless times. plug for other episodes. Jacob, the Jonathan. Uh, as we're calling him air quotes, random internet guy, apparently, <laughs> maybe you could tell us why is what Jonathan does important to your work as a filmmaker? Um, yeah, it's, 
uh, absurdly important. So me as a filmmaker, uh, you know, and us Planet Thunder Productions, when we made this movie, it was a lot of hard work and, you know, um, to, to get any movie made. And you, when you're done, you want people to watch it. Like we did, we put it in film festivals. We hope we build up a good rollout and get people's eyes on the movie. But that can only go so far. Um, a lot of people don't go to film festivals. They don't pay attention to film festivals um, for many, many reasons. And so I love the film festival experience. But beyond that, what do you what do you do once that kind of festival run is done? Um, and so we with Shifter were extremely lucky. Cinequest was our first film festival. It was our world world premiere. And then Jonathan, random internet guy, pops out of nowhere asking to see the movie. And you know there are ways you can self-distribute your movie you know there's definitely pathways to like get your movie out there yourself but it's really hard and there's a lot of nuance and probably could have uploaded the movie to youtube or something like that by ourselves and our friends and family would have watched it but you want to expand beyond your your bubble and your circle and that's where people like jonathan can really come and really take it to the next level so we, you know, for us specifically, one of my uh, proudest days of being a filmmaker and proudest days of uh, Shifter was really thanks to Jonathan and Horror Collective when they announced their acquisition. We were in uh, on um, Entertainment Weekly, and so we never would have been able to get that ourselves, um, get that attention, and, and then from there we ended up on like Sci-Fi Wire and a lot of other cool websites, kind of covered the, the the trailer release and everything, and so. Um, and then beyond that, like he's, you know, the, the acquisitions guys and, and uh, distribution companies and people like Jonathan, like they're the ones that get the, ha- the movie into people's households. Um, they can get it in the theaters. They can get a physical release. It just kind of depends on the movie. But they just they have the access. They have the connections. They know the business way more than you do. And it's great for us because then we can focus on being the creatives. Um, we can focus on on mm-hmm. on. Uh, that stuff and let them handle the the business, <laughs> the boring business stuff. Um, but hopefully he doesn't think it's boring. We personally are extremely grateful to Jonathan because um, um, we just kind of really feel like he kind of discovered our movie and he was a really, really early uh, believer in the project. So, um, so thank you. I'm so excited now that uh, Jacob's kind of uh, primed us. Jacob and Zach have both primed us a little bit. Super excited to introduce Today's special guest, Jonathan Barkan, the director of mental health and horror documentary and the head of U.S. distribution at VMI Worldwide. Jonathan, welcome to the Cinematic Schematic. Thank you all so much for having me. I, I want to let everyone know I haven't been sitting here just stone-faced. I've been on mute. I have been <laughs> laughing. I The moment they were like, random internet guy, I was like, yes. Best moniker. Uh, so <laughs> I've just been out of out of a need to be polite and to make sure that editing this will not be an absolute nightmare. I, I've been on mute, <laughs> but thank you all for having me. It's, Bless you. It's it's really it really is such a a joy to be here to be chatting once again with with Zach and Jacob and and to meet you, Caleb, and just to talk about the good old days and also you know what's what's coming up. Yeah. Exciting times. Uh, you know, it feels like uh, air quotes. The movies are back. I feel like we've said that a few times, mm-hmm. but um, I know especially with with the the horror, the last uh, what 12 months have been really, really strong. I mean, we just come off this weekend. We had Evil Dead and not technically a horror per se, but mm-hmm. Bo is Afraid coming in theaters yeah. at the same time. A lot of exciting horror, horror projects. And of course, Skinner Rink a couple months ago, me and Zach actually saw that together. Blew mm-hmm. my socks off. Like just incredible so film. Awesome. Oh, uh-huh. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for, for supporting it. Yeah. I, um, it's, you know, that's a movie that I knew was going to be incredibly, I'm not going to go too deep into it because I know there are questions. I'll just say this. It's a movie that I knew was going to be incredibly divisive and, and it was like that for me, you know, usually when you see a letterbox score after like it's been out for a while, it looks like a hump. You have, you know, a few fives, a few ones, but everyone's kind of in the middle. Skin Rink is the complete opposite. It's a skateboard half pipe. It's a ton of ones, a ton of fives, and then a few people who were like, I don't get it, but I guess it was cool. So it was, it's just a weird, complete opposite of everything you're expecting. <laughs> That, you know, that shows that it's a great movie. I think that is that is definitely a sign of a great movie. I, I can tell you I have been afraid to watch it at home. So we saw it at a, an art house theater here in Oklahoma mm-hmm. City, the Oklahoma Museum of Art, with a few people. And it was also very scary there. But I have been terrified to watch it at home by myself with all the lights off. I'm, I haven't I haven't worked. That would be too yet. much. That would be too much to watch it at home alone. Like, no, no, thank you. Can't do it. So my wife and I watched it recently because she hadn't seen it up until just a, a few weeks ago. It was just we had, we were constantly making plans. Let's watch it. But then something, you know, life got in the way. One of those experiences. And then we finally sat down and we watched it. And uh n- I feel comfortable saying this because if I'm right, my wife tweeted her reaction, but that final shot, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it, but those of you who remember the film, that final shot, um, my wife was literally sobbing because, and it was, I had to check in. I was like, just check in. This is out of fear. And she's like, yes, I'm terrified. Leave me alone. (laughs) And it really was just because that movie harkened back to a very primal childhood fear that she had that it wasn't that she outgrew it necessarily. It's just that as you get older, a lot of our childhood fears don't really have the same impact that they once do. But when you're watching this movie and if you allow yourself to be put into the the shoes of these really young kids and you kind of allow your inner child to take over suddenly all of those fears that you've kind of moved beyond. Oh my God, they come rushing back and they hit you like a freight train. And that's what it did to her. So it's, it was one of those very strange moments where I was, I was genuinely concerned for my wife because she was, like sobbing. I was I was so nervous for her and and concerned because it's my wife. I love her dearly. And at the same time I was like, fuck yes. This movie I got just all these people. And I see it and oh God, yes. Nailed it. This is what it's all about. <laughs> amazing. I wrecked someone's amazing. life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, that's incredible. And yes, we are going to talk about Skinamarink uh, a little more later on in the interview. But, you know, Jonathan, I just want to step yeah. back here for a moment because, I mean, in terms of horror cinema, you have had an incredible career. You've been going from bloody disgusting back in the day yep. all the way to head of U.S. distribution at VMI Worldwide. Uh, you had uh, a few other stops along the way that I think listeners might recognize. It was at Dread Central, yep. right? Uh, editor-in-chief at Dread Central, yeah. When I joined Dread Central, that's when they were acquired by Epic Pictures, who 
they were known for as, as like a genre label. Everyone thought of them as a genre label, but they were really generating the majority of their revenue, at least from what I was told, by family films and non-genre fare. So they they didn't want to lose that genre cred, but they also wanted to make sure they were still open to people who are like, look, we're not we're not interested in, you know, our, you know, romantic comedy being a part of your horror label. And so that's why Epic bought Dread Central, because then they could create a the Dread Central Presents line of movies, which eventually became just dread. Um, and that's where I started my journey in film acquisitions. Before that, I was a journalist, a critic. Um, that's that's really about it. And well, not it, I don't want to say it, that's it because I loved what I did and it was amazing. And the opportunities I had was astonishing. Um, and it really prepped me for who and what I am today. Um, and yeah, then the opportunity came and then suddenly I was a creature of two worlds. And when I say it was immediate, it really was immediate. I joined Dread Central. We didn't even get to announce it uh, for a couple of weeks. And Epic bought me a ticket to South by Southwest to help with acquisitions and things like that. Before I had a title at Dread Central, before I knew what I was going to be making, <laughs> before anything, um, and there was a genre filmmakers dinner that Epic put on for many, many years at South by Southwest. And I was there um, where they announced that they'd acquired Dread Central. And suddenly uh, one of the co-owners, uh, Shaked, who I launched the horror collective with, um, Shaked was like, hey, uh, those those guys over there, they've got a movie that we're really interested in. Uh, go over there and get it for us. And I was like, what? What does that mean? I have zero training in this. I have like, like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, that's right. Okay, come with me. And he mentored me and helped guide me and like within three, four months, suddenly like films that I was pointing out, we were acquiring and I was going to more and more film festivals and I was talking to directors and producers and writers and sales agents. And I was meeting with festival programmers and just this, this kind of, uh, networking spider web that grew and grew and grew. And that's really where I kind of, started exploring the other side of the film industry rather than covering it. I was in it. And yeah, from there, you know, I, I left dread central and Shaquette and I launched the horror collective and I got to meet these two wonderful kind souls, you know, Zach and Jacob and put out shifter, which is a film. I, to this day, when people ask me like, what are some films you remember acquiring and distributing shifter is in like my top three, top five, like easily. And I've, at this point acquired dozens upon dozens of, of titles. And so it was, it really was just this whirlwind journey of an enormous amount of hard work with a not insignificant amount of luck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's that's super impressive. It's you know you're right place, right mm -hmm. time, but you're also putting in the work. And when those opportunities came along, you pursued them and chased them. I think that I think that's uh, just super good framing uh, some advice for listeners in terms of 
how do you find yourself in these opportunities? It's by getting your foot in the door and doing the best you can when those opportunities arrive and chasing those. So could you tell me a little bit more about horror cinema? I mean, you mentioned the horror collective. So obviously genre and horror especially is your wheelhouse. What about horror movies really inspired you to pursue this type of career? I think it's more that horror has always been a part of my life. You know, I've said this before. I'll, I'll give you the, the kind of very abbreviated version. But um, when I was very, very young, uh, I want to say five years old, right around there, my older sister uh, was diagnosed with medulloblastoma. It's a type of brain cancer. And at the time, uh, this was in the late 80s, very, very, very early 90s, because it was a multi-year thing. At the time, it was... You know, they said she has a five percent chance of making it through. Nowadays, it's it's Ooh. like it's still very serious, but the chances of survival significantly higher. But anyway, so she spent two years in the hospital, and it was chemotherapy, it was radiation, it was surgeries. There were times when I, my parents took me to the hospital to visit her, and she was just wrapped in bandages. She looked like the mummy. And there were other kids in the, in that ward who were also going through a lot of treatment and some of them needed, you know, required amputations. And so I was walking around and there were kids missing arms, legs, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, one or two of each, uh, a lot of children who were just contorted because of the ailments that they were suffering. And I grew up around them in a weird way. I kind of lived my own version of Todd Browning's freaks where the visually abnormal you realize are some of the kindest, most beautiful people out there. And it was very often the parents who would walk by the rooms or see these kids and kind of, you you could see it, that slight revulsion, you know, that slight bit of, thank God my child isn't an amputee or isn't, you know, contorted or anything like that. And you realize they're the villains. Like, that, what a terrible thing to look at a child who's going through hell on earth. Anyways, I was, because of my sister was in the hospital and my dad being a doctor, he was traveling the world giving lectures to help with, you know, co-pays and everything because God bless the, the American, you know, medical system. <laughs> um, because of that, my mom was very often staying with my sister and I was left to my own devices at a very, very young age. And so I had to kind of grow up very quickly. And cancer is one of those illnesses where you can't really see it. You can't put a face to it. And especially when you're that young, you have a hard time understanding it. And so a way for me to understand it was through horror. It was, you know, there's a monster. It can be vanquished. Even if it comes back, what greater, you know, analogy for cancer, you know, cause cancer, you know, when people have their last treatment, it's not, I don't have cancer anymore. It's I'm in remission. And remission can be several years because who knows, the cancer might come back. And that's horror movies. The villain's dead, but he, they might come back. And so from a very, very early age, I was, you know, sneaking up late to watch Tales from the Crypt. And I was hiding around the corner while my parents were watching Twin Peaks. Uh, and, you know, I did a, a podcast, Scarred for Life, with with Terry from Gaily Dreadful and Mary Beth, who's the editor-in-chief now at Dread Central. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of Scarred for Life. What scared you in your childhood that still impacts you? It was the Twin Peaks 
inspired episode uh twin beaks from darkwing duck uh so that um, like and and video games you know i was like rocking castlevania uh and friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street seventh guest on pc 11th hour um so horror really became a big thing for me and before anyone starts asking about books uh scary stories to tell in the dark yeah, you know it. And, you know, I've got of course. <laughs> right here one of my favorite books of all time, you know, Clive Barker's The Thief of Always. So from really early on, horror horror was incredibly important to me because it wasn't just cool and scary. It was a way for me to contextualize the very real horrors of what I was going through at a too early age. Um, and so I think that's what kind of spurred me into just loving the genre and constantly chasing it, constantly seeing, you know, what can I watch? What can I read? What can I play? What can I listen to? Um, you know, it just, to put it, to put it into perspective how much horror calms and soothes me anyone who's played the very first silent hill knows that the soundtrack scored by akira yamaoka is basically industrial noise like i i joke with friends they're like so what does the first silent hill like sound like what's the music like okay put a microphone at one end of a warehouse and at the other end just take a lead pipe and start beating something that's metal there you go that's a soundtrack for silent hill one and they were like oh that sounds awful and i was like yeah i used to fall asleep to it like religiously <laughs> i would put it on my disc man hit repeat all have my disc man plugged into the wall so i didn't drain the battery put on my headphones and i would just read until i fell asleep and i would wake up and the soundtrack would still be playing wow. and people were always like so how are your dreams and i was like i mean they were amazing <laughs> well, horror guy of course they were great yeah. I, I mean I, I guess if you're if you're chasing the horror itch and you want to have nightmares oh 100% so i mean just out of curiosity i mean do you did you find yourself chasing the the scariest stuff you can find is that sort of serve as some form of uh, catharsis to to you some of the the fears you experienced as a as a child or is it like what what is it that's like really like ooh I want to experience that again, or I yeah. want to. I want to work my way through that. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic question because when people think of horror, there is that question. You know, what's the scariest thing you've ever seen? Do you chase the thrills and the terror? And that's really aside for me. Like, it's not the main course. I love getting scared. I I relish it. It's. This is not me trying to be a braggart, but having watched so many horror movies and constantly embroiling myself in it, it's hard for me to get scared. And it's just because I've seen so much. Um, so when I do get scared, oh, I love it. It's I, I relish every, every moment of it. But no, what really drew me to horror, and I think what will always draw me to horror, is... It's for me, it's not about watching people die. It's about watching people fight to survive. And I think there's something really beautiful about people who will fight with every fiber of their being, with their last molecule of oxygen for even just a few more seconds. And they will 
fight for their friends. They will fight for their family. You know, people people who aren't really knowledgeable about horror very often diminish it and reduce it down to pop culture stereotypes. It's slashers. It's gore. It's tits. Like, that's it's just immature boys want to watch horror movies. When in reality, it's full of innovation and creativity and social commentary and deep messages and very personal expressions of fears and grief and happiness and and everything that you can imagine and so horror for me really is this invitation to watch filmmakers bear a part of themselves that they kind of know is going to reach an audience that will appreciate it. I imagine working in acquisitions, you get to be sort of like the the person who bridges that uh, gap, so to speak. You find the filmmakers with the, the, the films and you say, hey, I, I'm going to help you connect to the audiences, right? Is that is that like, is that sort of how you see your role? Definitely, yes. When acquisitions was my focus, and I think this is a really important thing that we will talk about, you know, a little bit later. You know, currently my role is in distribution, which is very different from acquisitions. So with acquisitions, where I got my start uh, with Epic and then the Horror Collective and then uh, at Mutiny, where uh, Skidmore Inc. was originally found. Yeah, acquisitions is this really incredible part of the industry because... The movie hasn't been released yet. And when I say the movie, fill it in with whatever you want. Any movie. It hasn't been released yet. And the vast majority of films are made outside of the studio system. So when people make them, it's not clear that there's going to be a release. Um, You know, that's the hope and that's the goal of all filmmakers. But that's not a guarantee, necessarily. I mean, just look at Mike Flanagan's Before I Wake or Mike Doherty's Trick or Treat. Those were required and they sat on the shelf for at least a year or two, depending. And so acquisitions, I was, you know, researching festivals. I was diving deep into the bowels of Reddit. I was following all of the entertainment websites. I was going into like the fifth, sixth, seventh page of Google search results where, oh, you're going to find some weird stuff there. Uh, (laughs) And I was going into all of these places so that I could find information about movies that others hadn't heard about yet or that they, that were just beginning their journey. And I would reach out and talk with these producers and every single acquisitions call, I did my best to ensure that I carved out time to simply say, Hey, I know this call is about me wanting to acquire your film. We know that before we get into that, tell me your story. That's what I want to hear. Who are you? Why did you make this movie? What inspired you? What is special about it? You know, it's, I, I want to know the filmmakers as much as I want to, 
know the film. I want to be excited, not just about a really great movie, but the people who made a really great movie. So it's an, it's, it's an amazing way to meet a lot of people and to hear just really inspiring stories. And then together you kind of have the honest discussions of where do we see this landing? What are the audiences it can reach? How successful do we think it's going to be? Do we have to temper expectations? Do we have to, you know, swing wildly? Is it going to just do absolute gangbusters? Like what is it going to do? But you have that kind of honest conversation. And I did my best to live by a very simple motto, which is I would rather tell you an ugly truth than a pretty lie. And I think that's something that a lot of people really resonated with and responded to because, you know, without naming names or pointing fingers, there are some distributors who are in it for quantity over quality. They just really want as many titles as they can because they know that if they release a ton of titles, that several of them are going to do really, really, really well. And they're going to keep the lights on, pay for everything else. And the rest, they're going to trickle in enough that when you add it all up together, you're doing just fine. But the filmmakers don't get what they need, which is the the press, the marketing, the one-on-one time, you know, the updates. It's That's something that's really important for me. And so, and so, yeah, acquisitions just has this really incredible, it's, it's the way to welcome people into the door. That's, that's really what acquisitions is trying to make the house as inviting as possible, the entry as warm and welcoming as you can. And then I would be working together with the distribution side of things to say, Hey, I'm getting this. What do you think? What can it do? Where can it be placed? What's, what are we looking at? You know, projections, things like this. And then together we can work on the promotion the marketing, like, uh, like Jacob and Zach said, you know, uh, shifter had its trailer premiere on entertainment weekly, which is, which is huge. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And this is, this is going to, uh, puff up their ego a little bit. I have tried, um, several times since Shifter to get trailers or acquisition announcements or clips placed on Entertainment Weekly. To this day, Shifter really is the only one wow. that that they accepted and that they got on there. So you know Slow news day. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was they they were really, really excited about it. It's being in this position where there's so much creativity from all sides and you are all working together to try and create the most success possible for, for a film that I just know there is something special about it. So yeah, acquisitions is, it's an incredible place. From personal experience, um, t- talking to Jonathan early on, whenever he first reached out about Shifter and he saw the movie, um, it stood out immediately. And, you know, like we did, it, I, Jonathan was the first one. Some other kind of distributors kind of popped up as well, um, asking to see the film. And we, we met with some others. But what stood out about Jonathan immediately was where we were like, this guy's 
legitimately a fan of the movie. Um, <laughs> like he's legitimately a fan of Shifter. And speaking with some others, you know, it was kind of kind of like to touch on what he was saying. Like it was more about they just wanted more titles. They just wanted more stuff. Um, they weren't super open about like um, where money was going or where money was going to come from. And so like that was another thing we really appreciated about uh, Jonathan and Horror Collective. But yeah, just that's that's really what like stood out for us, Jonathan. I'm just speaking to you. Like like we we talked a lot about like we just we can tell that they actually enjoyed the movie, um, and so we feel like that passion will translate hopefully um, uh, in other areas once once it gets past that, and uh, we believe it did. So bring making it a welcoming, warm experience. Like it was just you know we hadn't personally dealt too much with distributors at that point. And so like, it was a great entry point for us and uh, clearly worked out well. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great. You're good thank at your you. jobs. Thank you. No, thank you. And, and, and thank you for the privilege of being able to acquire and, and work on and release shifter. Like what, what an incredible experience for me. Oh, shucks. Jonathan, you set the bar high because uh, these guys, next time they distri- they have a movie acquired, you know, if it's not you, it's going to be someone that's way nicer to you. And I'm not sure, based on this conversation alone, how all that's possible. I'm, so, I'm going to uh, tell you right now, they scraped the bottom of the barrel with me. <laughs> well, it's a very nice barrel. <laughs> Look, as long as it's a nice barrel, it's the kind of barrel that once you're done with it, you put it in yeah. your home. It's 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 decoration. Yeah, yeah, it's decorative. It's yeah, a display it's decorative. You can put some flowers in there. Yeah, <laughs> Jonathan. One other thing that really stood out to me just when I was you know learning about you and all the work you do at the Horror Collective, much like the team at Planet Thunder Productions and also the Cinematropolis. You're not living in New York or Los Angeles. Austin's another one. There's a handful of entertainment hubs, maybe Atlanta in some cases. You're not living where the work typically has been found in the U.S. So I'd love to just hear your perspective. I mean, what's the day-to-day like for you of working outside of these major entertainment industry hubs, not only in acquisitions and distribution, but also as an executive producer and very soon a director? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And it's funny because, uh, you know, whenever I have work calls with with platforms, with distributors with agents with whomever uh they always ask so uh you know where are you la or new york and i always say you know i'm just just outside of detroit michigan and the look on their face they're always like but why (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and i and i always joke i'm like yeah i live you know i i work in the film industry and i live where there is no film industry because we you know our our wonderful he says with heavy amounts of sarcasm, uh, ex-governor Rick Snyder did away with our film and tax incentive. We used to have an incredible film and tax incentive, $25 million in the pot Dang, per damn. year. Wow. And wow. And, uh, and like I say, good old Rick Snyder decided that was a bit too much and the appropriate number should be zero. So there is no film and tax incentive in Michigan, to my knowledge, at all currently. It's something that I would love to see come back. But anyways, the day-to-day really is, it's not too difficult in terms of, you know, being separated from either New York or, or LA with distribution. A lot of my work really is spreadsheets. That can be done anywhere. Uh, Zoom has kind of eradicated the need for 
me needing to be in the office. Like I'm, I basically, I would say three to depending on the week, seven times a week, I'm on zoom calls with my coworkers for various reasons. And there's an enormous amount of trust that they place in me. And I make sure not to betray that trust with results. So, you know, I have, I have my job, I have my responsibilities, and I always try and do whatever I can so that when I bring my results to the team, they go, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And we're so excited for what's coming next. So luckily I'm, I'm in an industry where that well is very hard to empty. There's always new things happening. There's always changes in the film industry. I mean, the pandemic alone has had a radical impact on film distribution and on what windows work. I mean, we see it still to this day where a film will come out theatrically and it used to be, I mean, I remember I saw Jurassic Park in theaters, loved it, absolutely loved it. I wanted it on VHS more than anything in the world. And I eventually got it. You know how long it took once the film was out of theaters for me getting it on VHS? It was something like nine months, almost a year, if I'm right. And keep in mind, I was a kid. So my memory is shot to shit. I don't even remember most of that. So I forgot what I had for breakfast today. You think I'm going to remember the release window of Jurassic Park? Not happening. Nowadays, a movie comes out in, in theaters and if it's not doing well, just flick the streaming switch. So long as you have a subscription, you can watch it. And it's it's a completely new world. And and it makes no sense whatsoever. But that's what makes it so fun is because we're all trying to figure it out. We're all going where the signs point, but we're also kind of dabbling in other areas. And while experimentation is is difficult because it can be very costly, if you hit the nail on the head, you're a trendsetter. You've suddenly revolutionized what's going to happen. So like I'm, I'm working on projects now that I never would have thought would have been something even just two, three, four years ago. So it's, you know, being in, in Michigan, it's not, I don't need to be elsewhere. I have an international airport 40 minutes from where I live, not even on a good day. I can make the drive in 20 minutes. That's it. And I'm at an international airport. If I need to go to LA, I can be there the same day. It's not even an issue. If I need to go to a film festival for acquisitions purposes, or I need to go to a, uh, a mark, a film market so that I can meet with the new wave of AVOD channels or linear fast providers or whatever, um, I can do that. And it's, and even if I can't go in person, I mean, I, I had a zoom call with someone in Australia just last week. That's like four or five years ago. That really wouldn't have been a normal thing to happen. And now it's like, Oh, you had to have a call with someone in Australia. Were you the one up late or were you the one up super early? And it's like, ah, I was the one that was up really late. So, you know, it's, it just, we, we've all been there. So for certain roles in this industry, you have to be where the action is. There's no other way around it. But for some other roles, it doesn't matter where you are. So long as you're good at what you do, 
and you have a and you have the ability and the experience to work remotely for long periods of time with without a lot of social interaction you'll be just fine you've been doing this for a little while did you feel like when things shut down for the pandemic in terms of ways of work did you feel like the rest of the world was catching up with sort of how you'd been doing things for a while did it make it easier harder um i definitely had some adjusting to do but that's because in the pandemic i found myself out of the united states i was in canada with my uh soon to be wife and it was just okay i'm in a foreign country what does this mean what's in you know what's what does all this have to do and i never really felt like people were catching up to me because uh, you know, I was, I was a journalist. I was a writer. I was a critic, and all my friends that I was meeting at festivals that are also journalists and critics, they were like, "Oh no, we also work from home." Like, yeah, do we have our day jobs? Sure. And I had a day job for for a while while I was working at Bloody Disgusting, and so it, I felt very kind of normal. It was very normalized. It was, it was strange when I started to be able to work from home full time. I had to adjust to that myself, but I never thought, oh, this is what, you know, other people should be doing. Or, you know, I never thought to myself, I am the future. (laughs) Uh, It was, it was just, um, this is what this entails. And you know what? I'm fine with that. Jonathan will not be making a career as a futurist anytime soon. Good to know. No, definitely not. I, I told you I can't remember what I had for breakfast. You're expecting me to plan the future? Jeez. I have a, a two-part question for you. Jacob or Zach, feel free to, to weigh in with some follow-ups on this. Sure. I imagine you have screened quite a number of films. You've already outlined several um, in a variety of positions as a writer or in acquisitions or as a fan even. What would you say was one of the most bizarre films that you've screened in your line of work? I actually want two different answers on this. One that you actually acquired and ran with it and another that maybe you decided to pass on. Okay. So I'm... I can give you the answer about the one that I acquired and I ran with it. The second one isn't one that I passed on. It's the one that got away. Mm. I'll put it like that. Nice. Uh, So which one would you like first? The one that got away or the one that I got? Let's start with the got away. Yep. So there's this incredible Japanese stop motion film called Junkhead. And it started out as a short film, and by sh- and short, I'm being a little loose because it's a 30 minute short film, but it's all the brainchild of one guy. And I got I'm gonna forget his name. I I know it. Uh, I think it's here. I'm just looking it up. Um, oh no, not Junkyard, Junkhead. There we go. Uh, I was correct, Takahide Hori. Um, so Takahide Hori one-man show effectively making this stop-motion film that's in this dystopian post-apocalyptic future where there aren't people. There are these other types of creatures and this weird world, and he realized this world to breathtaking details. It looks like, I don't know if you remember those old Tool music videos for Prison Sex and Sober where it was all claymation and terrifying, but the details were astonishing. 
that level. That's what I'm talking about. This felt like a two hour long tool music video with, and the dialogue in the film is all made up dialogue. So it's not like when people were like, is it English language or foreign language? I was like, neither. I like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's made up language. It's, it's Sigur Rós. It's Hopelandic. It's whatever. I don't know. Um, and it is fascinating. I love that movie with every fiber of my being. Someone and I've for years I was trying to acquire it at various different positions. I was constantly reaching out, like I'm at a new place. Here's what's different. Didn't work. Okay, cool. I'm at a new place. Here's what's different. Can this work? And the sales agency was just. They were so tight about it. They were so careful. Because they said Takahide uh, really wants to turn this into a trilogy. So either we need like an astounding MG so he can finish this, or you need to guarantee that it's going to like per- pull astronomical numbers so that he can make the second and third film. And I was like, I can't guarantee anything like that. Do you know what you have? This is a, a crapshoot. Like I'm, I'm sitting here constantly coming back and coming back and coming back because I love this movie. But if you think for one second that I can guarantee anything with it, you're dead wrong. I like, I'll do everything I can, but that's, that's really it. It's just such a unique film. I mean, it's 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 so bizarre and out there and it got away. I know that it was picked up for North American distribution. I don't know by who. I don't know a release date. I don't know anything. All I know is that apparently it has a home and once the promotions start to get it out there, oh god, I'm going to be promoting it with every fiber of my being cuz I love that movie and I'm very sad that it's not me that is getting it out there, but I'm so happy that people are going to be able to experience it. You have sold me. I looked it up and bookmarked it as this conversation uh, is unfolding because uh, I yeah, love stop motion. Incredible. Doesn't it look yeah. crazy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's so weird. Yeah. And there are times when the camera like pulls back or does like this wide shot and you're like, how? How was that created? Like it's, this looks like it had to have been, you know, stop motion shot in a gigantic soundstage. Like that's how big and expansive some of this looks. And then you see behind the scenes pictures and you're like, oh no, this was done in his bedroom. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Amazing. Oh man. It's amazing. Like just unbelievable. I, I can't wait. I'm just looking at some of the images. Yeah. Uh, I know listeners audio on only medium. I'll have to link some of these in the show notes, but uh, bookmark that uh, junkhead mo- the movie. Tell us about the one that you got. Okay. Gather round children for a story. <laughs> uh, so in my, in my job is, you know, as head of acquisitions at mutiny pictures, I was doing what I do, which is a lot of research, deep diving, you know, scouring the bowels of the internet and I was in the subreddit filmmakers. For everyone who knows how Reddit works, it was r slash filmmakers. That's where I was. And there was a post. Uh, it's it's not a very heavily populated subreddit. So, you know, each day you look at maybe three to seven new posts that are of value. And one day I go on and, and there was a post. Hey, I cut a trailer for... Um, for a film that I made and I would just love some feedback and I put on the trailer and it's a horror movie 
and I fell in love. Immediately DM'd the uh, OP as you know Reddit parlance is used. <laughs> I DM'd OP, uh, the original poster, and I said, "Listen, I saw your trailer. I'm in love with this. Like, this looks absolutely amazing. I do acquisitions for a distributor. I would love to talk to you." about this. And we exchanged information. We hopped on a call. We started talking. And uh, a couple of months later, after negotiating and and calls and questions and everything, I mean, I'm sure Jacob and Zach know exactly what I'm talking about. The typical uh, <laughs> process of introduction to signing. Uh, you know, a few months later, acquisition signed, sealed, delivered, pen, put to paper the ink has dried and that's how i acquired skinamarink and it was in it was in (laughs) post-production it you know he was wrapping it up and part of the discussions were uh my input in like the the very 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 11th hour if we're looking at the doomsday clock like 11 59 p.m you know, what do you think about this? Is there anything I can do to cut this or to change this? Like very, very minuscule things. Uh, I'm not even going to sit here and say that the edit is thanks to me. It's not at all. Everything about that movie is thanks to Kyle and his unbelievable work. I offered a few suggestions. Bless his heart if he accepted any of them. Doesn't matter if he did or not. The movie was still absolutely incredible when I watched it. But yeah, that's that's where I found... Uh, Skinamarink was just in the filmmakers subreddit and and that was one of those movies where I watched the trailer and I said to myself I fucking love this. This is something that I haven't seen before and I am just so engaged with what's being presented here. And it's more likely than not that every single other person on the planet is going to go, what the fuck were you thinking? This is garbage. How dare you? <laughs> Listen, man, you're talking to people on your side of the letterboxed half pipe. So I think we can we can gladly <laughs> yeah, disagree with right. those people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, I knew, where I knew that we had really struck a chord and that this was going to be something amazing was um, Fantasia the Fantasia Film Festival, where we had our world premiere for Skinamarink. And, you know, I'd reached out to Mitch, uh, the festival director. And, you know, this was months before. And I said, listen, here's a film. I need to sell you on it. It's called Skinamarink. It's a Canadian film. So automatically, you're going to love it because you're Canadian. It's Canadian. There we go. Um, But no, it's something, it's really unique. It's really different. And I think I even told him, I was like, it's kind of like watching a nightmare. That's the only real way that I can describe it. And Mitch got back to me and said, hey, you know, definitely heard of this. Really excited to check it out. And um, a few weeks later, he was like, yeah, it's in. World premiere. And, And Kyle and I were over the moon already. Now. For those who under, who have experienced film festivals, specifically from the criticism point of view or from the distributor point of view, you'll know that independent films, especially low-budget independent films, when they play at film festivals, you're really lucky if you get more than five to ten 
reviews. You're really lucky because usually people go there for the big names. You know, you go to South by Southwest because, you know, uh, us is the opening film or, you know, Fantastic Fest. They play, you know, the secret screening one year was Suspiria. Oh my God, everyone's going all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that that small independent film, it might not get a ton of attention unless it really stands out, unless it really captures attention. Like One Cut of the Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason that Blu-ray cover is nothing but festival laurels because they earned every single last one of them. Skinnerink. Within a week of its world premiere, we had 22 reviews from some of the biggest outlets who at their, the lowest score we got was a mixed positive where it was still like, listen, it's not a perfect movie, but holy shit, did it get under my skin? I'm still thinking about it. And I'm like, that's, that's the lowest score we're going to get. I'll take it. But we had people saying like, it's poltergeist by way of David Lynch, you know, films like this come once in a generation, you know, these, the the hyperbolic reviews that you never think you're going to get. And we were inundated with them. And I gathered all of these and I put together a pitch email to the team at Shudder. And I said, Hey, we have this really incredible film. This, these are the reviews that we're getting. Um, do you want to check it out? Do you want to watch it? And Shudder, I love Shudder. I love the Shudder team. Emily and Sam are two of the nicest people you will ever meet. Adore them. And with all the love in my heart, I can tell you, they take a while to respond to emails. <laughs> Sometimes a couple of weeks. It's nothing against them. They are, they're Shudder. They're inundated. Holy crap, are they inundated? I get it. I'm not complaining. I am, I'm recognizing. I am stating some facts and recognizing. That's all I'm doing. They got back to me two hours later. Oh, dang. Saying, we know about this movie. We have heard nothing but amazing things. Send it to us. Sent it to them. And within a week, they're like, here's an offer. I was like, oh, dang, time to start negotiating. Yeah. All right. And that's when I had to break out the, you know, okay, I'm, I'm no longer acquisitions. I'm negotiating a contract. Here's what we need. Here's what my filmmaker needs. Here's what we want to make sure of. Here are the rights. Here's this. Here's that. Blah, blah, blah. Everything. And we came to a really incredible decision. And like they were supportive from the very beginning. They loved it. They still love it. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to go to Sam, uh, to, uh, the wedding of the head of the currently sad to say the ex head of publicity for shutter Sean and Sam was there and just every like couple of hours at the wedding, Sam would come up and just pull me aside and be like, I had another idea for what we can do with skin work. <laughs> I'm just like, lay it on me. You guys are handling it. Like I can't really impact anything, but whole, I just want to hear your, like your ideas. I'm super excited. Um, but yeah, skin rink really is that movie where, it's it's so weird and it's so different and it was such a breath of fresh air and it challenged me and that's why I fell in love with it because there are so many times, you know, I used to review movies constantly and Skinner Rink was a movie where I was watching and I was going, I don't, I, like, I'm not sure, I'm not understanding, I'm not getting it. And then I suddenly realized I was the problem. This is not a traditional movie. This is not your traditional narrative film. 
and I can't approach it from a traditional narrative perspective. So I just gave myself in to skin rank and I said, just manhandle me, do whatever you want to me. I don't care. This is why I love movies because they challenge me. They break me. They make me think in new ways. I have to experience things in a different perspective. The only way I can really describe it is imagine if you, um, are going to a theme park and you ride a roller coaster and then a roller coaster and then a roller coaster and you do nothing but roller coasters for years and years and years and years. And then one day you do the, the tower drop. It's essentially the same, but it really is a different experience and it's a different you know mechanism. And the way that they generate the thrills and the scares is completely different with the roller coaster. You're clink, 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 clink going up and you see the top of the hill. You, it's not a jump scare. You know what's coming. You're going to fall and you you know it's all happening. The, the thrill is in the anticipation of what's coming. The tower drop is in the anticipation of not knowing when they're going to push the button. So it is a jump scare versus the, the build, which it's funny that I use that as an analogy because I probably should have flipped it because, uh, you know, Skinamarink really is that slow build. But um, but yeah, that was that was it. So... Skinnerink is that weird movie that I fell in love with and I ran with it because I hadn't experienced really anything like that before and I wanted to share that experience. Well, man. thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Holy crap. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's a weird uh, point of pride for me that the guy who found Shifter is also the guy who found yeah. Skin and Marine. Like, yeah, right. it's, it's, like, it's so, incredible that, connected to that it's, movie. it's the most tenuous connection, but I'm like, I'll accept it. You know, <laughs> if you're, if you're telling people about that, then just, you know, and they're like, nah, like that can't be true. Like, just, just call me. Yo, what's up? Uh, hi there, Jonathan Marconi, EP of Skin Marine. How are you doing? And also, uh, acquired Shifter. <laughs> that's me. That's the guy. <laughs> Random internet <Yeah>. guy. <laughs> Random internet guy. Random <laughs> guy. And the thing I love about it, and you were sort of alluding to this at the beginning of the conversation, is it really for me? I was because I was trying to think. It, it took me a little while to articulate like what it was about the movie that oh, really yeah. got to me. And the best thing I can come up with is, um, among other things, the kind of the core mechanism that really worked for me was it really took me back to when you're like, you know, I was afraid of the dark when I was a kid, like many children are, you know, like like yeah. when like it was like age four. And you're walking around your house, it's familiar, you recognize it, but also everything's dark and you can't really see and things look like they're different. You know, there's, that could be a, a what is that shape? Is it the curtain? Is it a chair? Is someone in the chair now? I can't, I, you know, and it, you kind of try to focus on it and then your imagination kind of runs wild. And, and man, Skinnerink just did that to such an incredible degree. I, I've never seen anything like it. I can't wait to watch it again. I just have to work up the courage to do it at home. In the dark, you know, <laughs> you you can wait. The uh, there is a Blu-ray coming Ooh, out yeah. uh, three days before my birthday, and and uh, and Kyle uh, is you know has recorded a director's commentary Ooh. for it. So if you don't want to be as scared, Ooh. you can listen to you can yeah. watch the movie with Kyle talking over. Oh, it. that sounds fun. There we go. So when is uh, when's your birthday? My birthday is June twenty. Oh, they've announced it. I have no problem okay. saying it. Uh, you know, <laughs> Blu-ray comes out June twentieth. It's coming out. You're fine. Yeah. I think what's so fascinating about Skinnerink is, like you were saying, Caleb, it's it really taps into those innate childhood fears that you've maybe forgotten about. Um, and one specific fear I had is uh, our dad used to live in a house that had a, a staircase 
that just go up to the second floor. Uh, but anytime it was at night and I was the last person downstairs and you had to turn the lights off before you go up the stairs, I would always fear, feel as soon as I started up those stairs, I need to run. I had to run up the stairs because something was going to come out of the dark and grab me. <laughs> you don't know what's behind you, yeah. For some reason, since it's nighttime and I'm the only one there, it's just like it really taps into that, I don't know, unconscious fear that you don't even realize you have, and it's great. And it's also sometimes the fears you have aren't for something specific. When I was young, the house that we lived in, you know, very, you know, standard suburban house, like nothing, nothing to write home about, you know. Two levels, unfinished basement, very small backyard. Um, And the upstairs hallway, there was a switch that when you turned it on, it activated a fan that pulled air into the attic. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a huge fan. It was one of those things where you flick the switch, metal slats, you know, turned like Mm -hmm. that, you know, opening up. And then it started going. And it was so loud, so, so loud. And it always terrified me. Now, I wasn't scared of getting sucked up into the fan. I wasn't scared of the fan as a physical object, but something about that place, that experience, every single time it was on, it just filled me with dread. And I don't know how, but Skinnamarink tapped into that memory, because there isn't a fan in the movie. Like There isn't that kind of an experience, but it was always in my head while I was watching Skinnerink, and oh boy, I was uh, my heart was racing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and that I mean, and just again, you kind of alluded to it with the roller coaster versus the drop. T- I think it's actually a combination of both, though, because it does have jump scares, but it really is you're just waiting. Mm-hmm. That whole like I would say a good a good chunk of the movie, you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. The other shoe to drop, you're like, okay. Obviously things are happening. I'm I'm not sure when something big's going to happen and and that's when the movie sort of takes advantage of your imagination running mm-hmm. wild. You're like, "Oh, it could be here or there." Mm-hmm. And oh, I don't know. And now I'm anxious and then you don't even know what the thing that's going to happen will be, right? Yeah. Just oh man, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's okay, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. finally a 3 on a letterbox. <laughs> I'll be the guy. I'll be the guy. So I want to shift gears here a little bit. You also are now shifting into a director role for your upcoming project, Mental Health and Horror. Yeah. What has been the difference serving as a acquisitions slash distributor slash executive producer versus working as a director? How has that been a, a shift for you? It's really an interesting position that I'm in because I I almost don't consider it a a full experience because it was all done during the pandemic, really. Like we're in post-production now, like we're deep into the edit of the film and we're incredibly excited about what's all coming together. Um, there have been a few uh, production setbacks setbacks that we've just kind of had to handle internally. Um, you know, for example, you know, one of our producers who sources a lot of the B-roll and and creates a lot of footage for the B-roll for the documentary itself, her entire computer system just, like, died. And so, you know, I, I, had, I had to get her another, you know, a, another laptop and there was, you know, getting stuff. And so, like, 
Like it was one of those like two steps forward, one step back kind of situations. But we're still, you know, we're trudging along. We're incredibly excited. Um, you know, I've seen a hefty, hefty chunk of the film, and I, you know, no shame. I I cried because it's it's this vision that I've had, this passion project that I've had for a while, coming to reality. And so, as a director. It's, you know, there was an enormous amount of learning because I'd never been a director before. Uh, you know, I'd interviewed plenty of directors. I'd read books, but I was now in this seat. That funny story, I never intended to sit in. You know, I came up with the idea of this documentary. I came up with everything I needed. And I originally asked one of my producers to be the director they were definitely, you know, at, at first they were like, yes, absolutely. But then life changed, the pandemic, you know, all these things happened. And, and they said, you know, I, my journey is putting me on a different path. So I'm not, I'm not going to be director, but I still want to be involved. And they, they didn't, they brought so much to the project and, and I'm so grateful for them being there. For me, what directing was, was kind of deciding, okay, how do we want it? How do we want the people to look? Where are we going to go? What are the questions? How do we make sure that this is being done faithfully and respectfully? Because this is such a sensitive subject, you know, mental health. You know, we've only, I would say, within the past five to ten years, really come to a place where we can talk about it a bit more openly. We're We're still in that place where there's shame, there's stigma. There's judgment, but the amount of people who support those kinds of conversations is greater than ever before. You know, there were, I can't even tell you how many people that I interviewed after we were done pulled me aside and said, I wish I had something like this when I was young. And there, a lot of them are from my generation or, you know, they're 10 years younger. Some are, you know, 15, 20, 30 years older. It's just this wide spread of people that we interviewed. And they all said, I wish I had this when I was younger. I wish. And, and I thought about that for a while. The first time it was said to me and I realized that had this come out when I was younger, we were, it wouldn't have been released in a space where that kind of a conversation could rightfully be held. And so it would have come and it would have gone and it wouldn't have been a thing. And so it reminded me of that saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. So that's why I'm so excited and thrilled that this is being done now. Because in 20 years, I'm hoping that there will be people who look back on it. And what I'm more excited about is for people who don't look like me, who don't sound like me, who don't have the same kind of life that I've lived, when they decide to approach this story from their perspective, from their lived experiences, that's going to be such an incredible day. Because, listen, I'm a white presenting straight guy. That's me. Um, Have I gone through my own shares of adversity and pain and, and 
awful experiences due to you know me being Jewish and anti-Semitism and and also the f- first generation American and you know immigrant parents and things like that. Have I experienced stuff? Absolutely. Uh, have I experienced what a queer disabled person of color has gone through? Absolutely not. And I'm not going to sit here and say that one is easier or worse. Although I'm pretty comfortable saying that my experience was probably significantly better. Uh, but what I will say is that their lived experience is not mine. And so if they were to make a documentary about this topic, it would look wildly different. And what a beautiful thing, because that's what horror has always been a chance to go into the world of someone else and experience their perspective and I w- and I would love to do that for this. It's weird being a director. I don't really feel like a director because so much of it felt like not a director experience. I wasn't on a set for three weeks. You know, I wasn't looking at dailies, and I wasn't you know having meetings with my producers and you know talking you know extensively with my cinematographers. I had these calls and I had these conversations, but they were much shorter. And the interviews themselves were done over the span of, what would it be, approximately a year and a half. So it it was such a long experience that I, yeah, I am, I don't feel like a director. Who knows when that feeling will will hit? There's a lot of projects that I'm working on. Maybe one of those, <laughs> you know, if I, if I'm the director of one of those, maybe. Maybe I'll I'll feel that. But right now I just feel like I feel like a guy who again, through a lot of hard work and not an insignificant amount of luck, was able to put together a really incredible team of passionate, knowledgeable, experienced people who believed and still believe in my vision and what a humbling and profound experience that is. Wow. That's powerful. I said like a director though, uh, the team. Yeah. You sound like a director. <laughs> I wouldn't have any idea. <laughs> you're, you're, you're talking about assembling a, a team of people that, that really make it, make your vision possible. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to, to see the film. Um, you know, I think there was a trailer I saw on IMDb when it was, you know, re- prepping for this interview. Uh, and uh, listeners, I think this is one you're going to want to put on your radar. I, I mean, I don't, uh, Jonathan want to take away from anything you'd have to say about it. I mean, is there anything specific you'd like to, to say about mental health and horror or, or perhaps a pitch you would give to, to people who you think might be interested? I mean, the pitch that I gave, is what hooked a lot of people uh, in the first place. But basically, you know, people ask, you know, what's the goal? I think that's the the question that, that's the question that was asked of me that the answer I hope will answer your question. You know, when people ask me, what is the goal of this film? I said, there are two goals. The first one is very trite. It's very cliche. It's something you've heard. And it was basically, I want that kid in the middle of nowhere who doesn't have a lot of people around them who love horror the way that they do and who doesn't have access to mental health resources or an environment that nurtures positive mental health discussions to know that they're not alone. Um, 
and when I was pressed about that particular goal, I, I again had to do some digging and I realized that I need to envision that kid as faceless, genderless, raceless, um, sexless, anything because every, People from all walks of life love horror. So as a result, the documentary should try and reflect that as best as it can. Um, could it do better? I'll be the first person that says yes. Um, there is always room for improvement there. I I think we all did our best considering the very limited circumstances that we had at our disposal. The second goal, and I think this is kind of a what I'm really hoping comes away from this horror has been the villain of mainstream media for a long time, uh, in numerous ways, you know, the old EC comics were lambasted eighties horror. We know, you know, there, there's so much that, politicians were trying to stop horror from kind of existing. They were, there were so many attacks on it, Tipper Gore and, you know, the, and, and all those people, the satanic panic, you know, I think easily pointed at horror as a scapegoat in the UK. There was a case and I always, and I always feel bad about it. I, I always forget the name of the victim, but there was this very, very young child, I want to say a toddler, who was killed by two teenagers, if I'm right. And the media there blamed the fact that they had rented one of the child's play movies. I think it was two or three. And to this day, apparently it's still referenced. You know, in the UK, they had the video nasties, because uh, they couldn't accept horror uh, without seeing it as destructive or evil. And when you have these pundits, when you have these very popular people, the celebrities, the politicians, uh, the, 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 the doctors and psychiatrists and talk show hosts, all skewering horror, we could spend our entire lives trying to go to these people who buy into this falsehood and try and convince them otherwise. It's and we can't. And while we're trying to, you know, to embark on this mission of just explanation, these pundits are still out there saying the same thing and gathering more and more and more and more people. So horror has always been on the defensive of saying, guys, we're a genre. Like, you're not sitting out here pointing to fantasy and the monsters therein, you're not looking like psychological thrillers. Oh, those can be Academy nominated, but the moment you make it horror, suddenly it's violent degenerate. Like that's come on. Um, and the idea that gore is absolutely terrible. Uh, then saving private Ryan should have been lambasted rather than critically acclaimed. Uh, you know, I, I do remember that there was attempts to make it NC 17, but it never should have been. Anyways, um, so one of the big purposes of mental health and horror is in a way, it's meant to be us going on the offense. Because not only did we interview people in the horror community, the fans, the writers, the directors, the producers, the 
you know, festival programmers, uh, you know, whomever. Um, we also interviewed mental health professionals. We interviewed the people who have studied this, who have degrees, who have researched this, and they point to the actual scientific evidence of why horror can help certain people who live with a mental illness. And again, we're not out here saying, and we've never proclaimed that horror is meant to help people with mental illness. That would be irresponsible. It would be just a lie. It's meant, this documentary is meant for those people who have found that it can be helpful for them or who are open to the idea of something else being right for their therapeutic needs. And so if people want to sit here and go, no, horror is awful for your mental health and horror creates killers and horror is the you know reason why there's an increase in violence, then I get to say, prove it. Because I have evidence in my documentary, where's yours? That's So that's a big part of why mental health and horror exists and is going to exist for, for everyone to take in. Because I don't know about the rest of the horror community, but I'm really sick and tired of defending what I know to be incredible to people who will never give it the time of day and yet proclaim to be an expert. Having more champions like you propping up horror. And I think, as you said, sort of trying to reach people who are at a younger age when it's still formative. All of us had seen horror movies at formative age. And I think, the, you know, if we can change the narrative around how people think about it, um, you know, I think the, the possibilities creatively for what future horror could look like is really exciting. As a super quick example, to the people out there who think that horror is nothing but blood tits and uh, and beheadings, you know, I don't care, whatever, gore, um, I just, I point them in the direction of something like The Changeling, or I point them in the direction of, more recently, Relic. You know, Relic was... I've said this before to a, on a few podcasts, and I'll super shrink it down here. I watched Relic six months after my grandmother passed away from dementia, and Relic is an allegory for Alzheimer's and dementia, and I felt seen. It was one of the first times where I could mourn with something, um, and it's a beautiful movie, and spoiler alert, but uh, for the people who are hesitant about watching a horror movie, Relic doesn't have a single dead body. No one gets killed in Relic. That's not the kind of horror movie it is. You know, not all horror movies rely on death. And Relic is one of those films. It relies on the very real horror of a loved one decaying in front of you, their mind slipping away. And for a lot of people, you want to find some kind of catharsis in some way, shape, or form. And Relic was what offered that for me. I watched it again just a, a couple of months ago after not having watched it for, God, what, two years, something like that? Maybe, you know, two and a half. And I cried again. I cried again watching it. Um, because I 
saw myself in a movie about three generations of women who are each enduring dementia in their own way, from the grandmother who has it to the mother who has to be pragmatic while grieving to the granddaughter who's idealistic, but then gets a very rude awakening. It's it's one of those impeccably written films that deserves so much more than it has received. But the people who have received it have been very kind to it, and I'm very happy about that. Yeah, I, th- I think again that just speaks to the the greater power of you know, you know, film and, and cinema, especially in the, the the realm of horror. Though it always makes me think back to the um, the Roger Ebert quote where he describes uh, film as a uh, you know machine that's generate empathy, and I think that goes both ways. Yep, the empathy machine. Not only yep. are you understanding new perspectives, but it helps you reframe some of your own experiences in a way that's new and and can help you grow through catharsis. So Relic, that's a really great, incredible story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I will gush about Relic until my dying days. (laughs) Listeners, you have a lot of homework after this podcast, but don't worry, it's all the good kind. Um, Well, Jonathan, we're going to start to wind down, but I did have one last question for you before we go into our our short lightning round. you have had, like I said, just a, a super exciting career, just sort of how you've weaved your way into the entertainment industry and through various aspects of it from a critic to, again, like actually being in the industry, as you outlined earlier. What advice would you give either to filmmakers or film enthusiasts who really want to break into the entertainment industry, uh, especially for folks, I would say, who maybe don't live near one of those entertainment hubs like Los Angeles or New York? Never be afraid to ask. Uh, to ask for help, to ask for a referral, to ask for guidance, to ask for mentorship. You want to know how I got into acquisitions and into Dread Central through Epic? It's because I, after I left Bloody Disgusting, I reached out to Shaked at Epic and I said, hey, I'm no longer with Bloody. Um, do you know of anything? You know, because he and I had spoken several times and I, uh, and him being a Jewish guy, me being a Jewish guy, and both of us having a lot of connections in Israel, like I had nothing tying me down at the time. I hadn't yet met my my now wife. Um, I at that time I had just gotten my dog, my puppy, and he had like all of his records and vaccinations and everything. So I was like, he can go anywhere. Um, and I even said like, if you know of anything in Israel, like I have nothing. I'm ready to go anywhere. And he said, Oh, so you have a passport? I went, Yes, I do. And he goes. Okay, you obviously know horror. You've been doing this for a very long time. Um, you probably have some great networking and connections. Um, listen, I'm going to get back to you in a week and a half. I have a job for you. Just hold tight. And I was like, uh, okay. And and I, what happened was I reached out to him when he was in negotiations to acquire Dread Central. And they already had planned on Dread Central Presents. And uh, Steve, Uncle Creepy, he really needed to be to focus on the website through the transition of being acquired by Epic and uh, John Condit, who's you know the behind the scenes guy, uh, he needed to focus on 
that on like, okay, we've got to get a new site. We've got to get the analytics. Like we like, there's a ton of work. The, the, the business side of things has really got to go into overdrive. So they needed someone who, uh, as, as I like to joke, hadn't had a passport and wasn't afraid to use it. And I didn't have any problems whatsoever traveling. So I was going all over the place with, you know, and I was thrown into that world. And I said, listen, I, I, I told myself, I've been given a very, very rare opportunity. I've been given a chance here. And this is in a world that I love. This is in an industry that I'm so passionate about. And now I'm going to be able to approach it from a different perspective and speak with people rather than as a journalist trying to get stories. I'm speaking as a industry guy to industry guys. It it just changes the dynamic. So either I can flail about and sink in this deep end that I've been thrown into, or I can fight with every fiber of my being to swim. And I fought and I made mistakes and I learned from those mistakes and I asked for guidance and whatever guidance I got, I clung to it like it was a life preserver. And I asked everyone who I trusted and who I admired and who I respected, what is advice that you would give me? And they all gave, you know, these different bits of advice that I was able to cobble together into this really amazing tapestry of information and education. And I just kept trying. And and, and to this day, I keep adding to it and I keep asking for that advice and I keep asking for that guidance and that mentorship. So to the people who are listening, who want to break into the film industry, who want to try and go down this path, first of all, it's incredibly hard. It really is. Um, You know, any job in this industry, they'll be able to tell you how it is very difficult, how it has challenged them. Um, for me, it meant for a few years, effectively putting off a personal life because I really was traveling very frequently. And I was, and when I wasn't traveling, I was working very long hours. And so I didn't have a lot of time to dedicate towards, you know, meeting people or hanging out with friends. You know, I, I would go to my friend's place. I'd have my backpack and my laptop and I'd have my phone. It buzzed. Hey, we need the story up. Stop what I'm doing. Pull out the laptop, knock out a story, you know, 30 minutes later, go back to joining my friends only for an hour later. Hey, another emergency situation. You got to do this. So, you know, my friends were getting really upset and frustrated with me because I wasn't present as much as I wanted to be. Um, so yeah, you're going to go through a lot of difficulty, a lot of trials, a lot of hardships, but you will also experience some unbelievable opportunities and you will meet incredible people and hopefully you'll end up like me in one very specific way, in one very, very, very specific way. Cause I, again, I'm not trying to be very arrogant or boastful here, but I hope that those of you who hear me out and you venture down this path and you find yourself doing it for years and years and years to come, I hope that you'll think the same way that I do, which is every once in a while, you'll stop and go, holy shit, 
This is my life. This is what I get to do. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Well said. Amen. Damn right. <laughs> Jonathan, I, I honestly feel like uh, I could talk with you for another hour and a half, two hours, three hours. Uh, just so many exciting stories there. And uh, your, your enthusiasm is really is really contagious as well. Before we move on to our lightning round, though, uh, Jacob or Zach, any other questions you'd like to ask Mr. Barkhan before we start to wrap things up? One, I'm super stoked for your documentary um as a, as a proud kickstarter supporter i've been uh, <laughs> anytime we get updates and those emails I'm, I'm just read it immediately um but this podcast is going to be in an update by the way just so you know like when this podcast goes oh, live, be like hey y'all want to hear more about mental health and horror listen to this podcast <laughs> thank you perfect <laughs> yes um yeah but has uh kind of touched on a little bit but like has going through that process of being that documentary like have you are you considering um uh, furthering or or maybe leaning more into directing some more um whether it be a documentary or are you curious at all on narrative or um yeah. what's what's that process been for you yeah no i i have several film ideas that there are like one or two where i look at them and i go i need to direct those the vast majority of them i'm not precious about being a director um you know i'm perfectly happy uh, you know, coming up with the story, you know, writing, writing it out, working with a, like, I'm so not precious. I'll work with a screenwriter to, to write it for me. Like, like not a problem. Um, just, you know, I want to, what I really love and what I would love to keep doing is being on the set as support. I want to, I love producing. I love being there on the set. I love working with the director, helping, you know, realize their goals. I love the idea of, you know, uh, there's an emergency. Let's fix it. What can we do to fix it? How can we make this better and, and come out stronger in the end? Like, that's what really excites me. As I said, there are a couple of ideas where I think to myself, I need to direct that. Um, and it's simply because it's incredibly personal. That's all. But no, I think, listen, there are, there's a lot that I have in the works. There's a lot that I want to have in the works. And I am perfectly okay taking a backseat. Not a problem. I love that. Leading, uh, leaning into your nice. passions. Heck yeah. Zach, any final thoughts for us? Uh, can we make Shifter 2? Is that cool with you? <laughs> you, come, you come up with an idea. You bring it to me. If, if I love it as much as I loved uh, Shifter, then I will do what I can to help you make it come to reality. Perfect. That's what I needed. Good to know. All right. Shifter Marine. Shifter Marine. Shifter Marine. Yeah. It's a crossover. Do the crossover no. of the century. Yeah. I, see, what's funny is, is I heard Shifter Marine, and I was like, is this like time travel, but like a Marine that's going back to just okay. fuck up everybody? Like, go. okay, there, there we, we go. go. See? Coming up with ideas right here, right now. Um. Yeah. You heard it here first people <laughs> shifter marine we, we like to break the big stories <laughs> right this is a fun way to sign off so jonathan we're going to do a lightning round interview so essentially uh jacob zach and myself have questions we're gonna we're gonna fire at you i'm gonna time it here for two minutes and uh okay. listeners jonathan has not heard any of these questions is not prepped we're going to go through True. as many questions yep. as we can in two minutes. And, uh, you know, Jonathan, we're not going to score you per se, but 
you know, I might. Oh, you have to phrase it like that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, we will judge you. Of course. I, I expect no less. That's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So I'm, I'm guessing that the goal here is gut reaction. It's like first thing that comes to mind, lay that out. No matter how embarrassing I am going to <laughs> yes. make myself. Yep. Okay. I'm going to be embarrassed. I mean, honestly, I mean, you've, you've given us so much. Um, you've shared so much in the last uh, hour plus. Now we get to see a different side of your brain, which is where, where does your head go immediately when prompted? So uh, I think. Okay. Fingers on my temples. I am ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> the order is going to be me, then Jacob, and then Zach, and we'll keep round robbing. So, um, all right. I'm going to start gotcha. that timer now. Who is your favorite horror director, living or dead? Probably Wes Craven. Uh, what is your dream vacation location? Oh, um, I would love to visit Antarctica from uh, having traveled from South America because then I can say I've been to all seven continents. Hey. Ooh, nice. All right. So you wake up to find yourself trapped in a horror movie franchise as a potential victim. Which franchise and why? Um... Probably Nightmare on Elm Street because I already have sleep issues, so may as well make it easy for Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> Who is one creative you'd like to work with and why? Um, oh god, you know, I, I I would love to work with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead because I find their films to be just so fascinating and and unique. Obviously, you guys as well. Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, there it is. There, it is. there, it is. there we go. There we the go. <laughs> yeah, Shifter Marine. I know. Shifter Marine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this next one could get you in trouble. Uh, fast zombie uh, or slow zombie? Depend. Both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a phobia and what is it? Spiders. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Eight-legged freaks, man, uh -huh. terrifying. Uh -huh. Favorite uh -huh. final girl? Uh, probably Lori. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, classic. Uh, what is the first movie you remember watching? Oh, um, God, it, 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 the first horror movie I remember watching is A Nightmare on Elm Street Four, but it was only a scene from it. Uh, but the movie I watched the most in my childhood, which probably might have been my first one, uh, Ridley Scott's Legend. Time. Oh, Ooh. Now that's a movie. Oh, nice. iconic. D do don't you dare talk no, talk no, shit no, no, about no. my it's legend. Back. All right, you know. What? Here we go. Bonus question from me. Uh, for those of you who who like Legend and have seen both the U.S. and the U.K. version, which do you prefer, the score by Tangerine Dream or Jerry Goldsmith? I, I can't say I've seen both versions. So I can't I, either. I can't answer. <laughs> but well, I just asked a what? question like a dick. <laughs> I mean, it's a good question. No, no, you're just revealing. You're just revealing that we're not good enough. We're not big enough fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you're have revealing to, our blind spots. These are our own failings. Therefore, my score just dropped. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, Caleb, Caleb, you did say that there was a bunch of homework. So now I've just given you even more <laughs> right, homework. I will take it. Um, awesome. Well, uh, 
Jonathan, I have to say, this has been such a fun time. Thanks so much for taking time out of your evening to sit down and talk with us on the, the cinematic schematic. Uh, where can uh, listeners keep up with you, your work, and all of the exciting things uh, that you have in the pipeline, including mental health and horror? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Barkan. You can follow the doc at doc and... If you want to follow my job, uh, VMI, and the movies that we're releasing, you can follow us at VMI World on Twitter. All these are on Twitter, by the way. Awesome. As long as it may last. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there's the real horror, the real kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, anticipatory jump scare. When will Twitter die? Yeah. <laughs> there's a horror movie in there somewhere. Absolutely. I, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Jacob uh, and Zach, Jacob, I can start with you. I mean, you guys uh, obviously have a new film that's in the pipeline. I know you're about to be talking a lot about a lot, hopefully even on the show, but uh, where can people follow uh, Plant Thinner Productions and all the things you guys are doing online as well? Jacob? Um, yeah, you can follow me personally on Twitter at a film by Burnsy, and then on Instagram, I'm Jacob Layton Burns. And then Planet Thunder at large is, it's just at Planet Thunder, right, Zachary? <laughs> uh, crap. Now I'm embarrassed. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure on Twitter it's just at Planet Thunder. On Instagram, it might be Planet Thunder Films. That might be right. I'm gonna that fact check sure. it. I'll link it in the show notes. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah, Someone better, better than this will do this. Uh, awesome. And uh, Zach, directorial debut coming soon. Where, where can people follow you and uh, other announcements? Uh, yeah. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Left Eye Burns. Uh, and uh, yeah, keep your eyes out for Hell Hath No Fury. A fun little dark comedy that I've is hitting the festival circuit soon. All right, very uh -huh. excited, very excited, uh, listeners. Uh, if you have any other follow up questions for any of our guests today, or you just want to share your opinions on any of the horror films we've talked about today, you can always uh, email us at the cinematropolis at gmail .com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the cinematrop. Uh, you can find me tweeting about the films, uh, sometimes television, sometimes video games, over on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Uh, Jonathan, one last time, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you all so very much for having me. It's one, the podcast was an absolute delight. And two, it really was such a pleasure seeing uh, Zach and Jacob again, because as I said before, Shifter is a really, really wonderful movie. And I encourage everyone listening who hasn't seen it, please set aside time, watch it, support independent filmmakers, support independent films. The the only reason that theaters are still taking movies like Skinamarink, like Terrifier 2, like The Outwaters, is because people show up and support it. So if you want to see more original stuff, you have to let people know with your dollars, with your views, with your rentals, with whatever, even if it's streaming for free on Tubi, the more that you do that, the more it will help independent filmmakers. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well said. With that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. We'll catch you again next time when we return with another review. I think it's going to be Bo is Afraid. Bo is Afraid.